0: Beloved in the Lord, one of the major errors that has plagued the church all throughout its history is a segregation and division between the way I use physical things and the way I use spiritual things. Spiritual things mattering to the Lord and physical things not so much. It is this Lie that Christians use to allow themselves to be sexually immoral. And at the center of this segregation is a misunderstanding of the resurrection. Christ came not only to redeem our souls, but also to redeem our bodies. Yet, somehow, even churches that fully affirm the resurrection seek to lessen the importance of the fact that my body belongs to Jesus Christ and that my service of him must be embodied. Glorify God in your body. This becomes a major theme of Paul over the next couple of chapters. You were bought with a price. Body and soul. Your body and the way you use your body ought to bring glory to God. Now it's important to see here again, uh, to see here that Paul is talking to people who are flaunting their Christian freedom and using it for wickedness. That's why he takes such a hard line in this passage. Now you too might be struggling with sexual immorality, whether in pornography or perverse sexual lusts or other forms of unchastity, the point of this passage is not to condemn you, but to call you to flee sexual immorality and turn to your loving Lord Jesus Christ and seek His mercy. It's that reality that is integral to Paul's teaching on sexual immorality. He wants you to be freed from it. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, flee sexual immorality. And we have three reasons, and they're somewhat in order in the text, but they also kind of, um, they also, you might say, each reason is working up inside the other reasons. So flee sexual immorality, first because of the resurrection, second because your body is a member of Christ, and third because sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Our text begins with what is likely several quotations from the Corinthians. These are things that the Corinthians likely used to defend their sexual immorality alongside other sins that were prevalent in the Corinthian church. These are based what they have been taught by Paul, even the teaching of grace that we see in the immediate context here in 1 Corinthians. If you look at verse 11 right before our text, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. This means that, as the Corinthians say, all things are lawful for me. We have been freed from sin. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. These are teachings that are all through the teachings of Paul in his letters. So there's a truth in the teaching of the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me. As a general statement, what they don't realize is the brokenness that sexual immorality causes or the nature of the redemption in Jesus Christ to whom their bodies truly belong. A lot of this argument will center around the fact that when you commit sexual immorality, you are saying that your body belongs to that other person. And what Paul is saying, no, you don't become a slave of somebody else. You stay a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is developing an argument here. All things are lawful, yes, but not all things are helpful. And this should be obvious to anybody who contemplates life, for example. You, you, might, not, you might like cake, for example, and there's nothing wrong with eating cake, but an excess of cake is not helpful, So, Paul begins by simply demonstrating the juvenile nature of using a slogan like, all things are lawful for one's life. He goes on, all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, we tend to assume Paul is talking about something like substance abuse because that's our modern way of thinking, right? You take a substance and you form a bond with that substance, and that alcohol or that drug controls you. And it's not that we should discount something like substance abuse being an application of what Paul is talking about here, but Paul's first thought here has entirely to do with the nature of sexual intercourse. In sexual intercourse, you connect yourself with somebody… So, that is, he says later in chapter 7, your body belongs to that other person. In chapter 7, he's talking about legitimate sexual intercourse between husband and wife, and the wife's body belongs to her husband, and the husband's body belongs to his wife. Paul notes later in our text, the two shall become one flesh. There is a mastery given to the other person in the sexual act. Then Paul brings out another slogan that the Corinthians used. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Again, there's a truth here. Our bodies will die, so the particular pleasures we enjoy are not always of the high importance we like to place on them this is, again, a general statement that can be misapplied. Arguably, the Corinthians are taking this to mean that the way in which we use our body is of no great matter in this life. It's all going to pass away in the end anyway, not only in relation to food, but also in relation to our sexual needs. The the idea seems to be that just as the body needs food, so the body needs sex, And it's of no great matter how those sexual needs are fulfilled. Paul's answer is that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In one sense, we can see this in the creation of Adam and Eve, which is why I read from that passage God intends Adam and Eve for each other, and they are made in the image of God. They are stamped with the Lord's image. They belong to the Lord. At the same time, Paul refers to the new creation in Christ. The body belongs to the Lord, and the Lord belongs to the body, meaning the church. And the Lord belongs in the church to each individual Christian, Because as we know, the Lord has given the Spirit to each individual Christian. And to prove that, Paul goes to the resurrection. And God raised up the Lord and will raise us up by His power. This is the fullness of redemption that we so often miss, that our bodies belong to the Lord. Our bodies are secure in His body at the right hand of God. God loves our bodies so much that He redeemed them and promises that our bodies will be raised on the last day. Paul will come later to a fuller defense of the doctrine of the resurrection, but it's important to see already how important this is to our Christian life. There are really only two doctrines that are continually attacked in the history of the church. And these are the doctrines that Christ is God and the doctrine of the resurrection. These two are intricately connected. The denial of Christ as God undermines the power of the resurrection, and the denial of the resurrection undermines Christ's power as God. All the heresies and errors of the church seek to undermine these two truths. But it's not only doctrine we're thinking about here. Also, our actions in our Christian life are also an affirmation or a denial of the resurrection of Christ. As Paul points out, that is most clear when we choose to sin sexually with our bodies. We deny the love God demonstrated for our bodies in Christ's body and blood that was shed for us. That brings us to our second point. We flee sexual immorality because your body is a member of Christ. Paul reinforces his teaching that the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The word member here should literally make us think of parts of the body, such as hands, head, heart, and mouth. When we are bought by the Lord, we are connected to Him. Again, not only our soul, but also our body, as is demonstrated by the resurrection of Christ Jesus. We can think of Romans 6, where based on our baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God calls us to sanctify all the members of our body to Him. Whatever we use our hands or heads or hearts for, are all for Jesus Christ and according to His law of love. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Because Christ is holy, I am holy. Am I going to use my sanctified body to unite with a prostitute? Never, says Paul. This is a grotesque joke. In fact, to join oneself to a prostitute or to participate in other perversions of the day is to deny Christ. We can see this in how often the rejection of Christianity is coupled with secret sexual sin that has grown until the sinner is estranged from Christ. If you followed Joshua Harris's rejection of Christianity, for example, you see how his rejection of Christianity went along with an acceptance and likely participation in what our world calls sexual freedom. This sexual freedom that is, in fact, sexual slavery, as our passage has already demonstrated. You cannot belong to Christ and to a prostitute. Paul brings out the implications of sexual union. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. The intimacy of sex cannot be separated from union with the other person. And Paul demonstrates this through the order that God created from the beginning. We see in the history of Israel how this was a constant temptation for her, from the sons of God marrying the daughters of men in Genesis 6, to Baal Peor, where Israel played the harlot with the Moabites, to Solomon's wives… To the men who married Canaanites in the time of Nehemiah, Israel's adultery always led to idolatry, and it's the same for those who are redeemed by, by Christ. God intends good things for our bodies, and we are called to entrust our bodies to Him because He will do what is good for us. The basic lesson is if, if you think that you are better off to follow the path of sexual immorality, Paul wants to remind you that God knows more about your body and your desires than you do. Remember that He knows what is good for you because He is good. What is good? That's clearly laid out for us in Genesis One man, one wife, not many wives, as was often the practice in the Old Testament, though God was patient with His people in this. God desires one man to enjoy one wife and vice versa, and desires that union be fruitful. These are the purposes that God has laid out for sexuality in the Scriptures. And yet, this is important, sexuality is not essential to our natures, or the most important part of life. Our most important relationship is our relationship to God, which is spiritual. And by that, I don't mean to oppose the physical nature, or, or, I don't mean to oppose that to the physical nature or the body, but that it is through the Holy Spirit that we are connected with God. The spiritual connection is in the hope that we will see Him face to face. Paul says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Misused sexuality undermines that union. So says Paul, Flee sexual immorality. There's one other sin that Paul and the Scripture call us to flee, and that is idolatry. Sexual immorality has a grip on the flesh so it can pull us away from our union with God. We can think of Joseph in the Old Testament who fled from Potiphar's wife when she sought to connect with him. Flee it. Don't cultivate it. The lies of the world about understanding each other sexually before marriage or missing out on experiences or fulfillment are just that, lies. Our fullness, the fullness of mankind, lies in Christ and His redemption. Only He can give us what it means to be fully human. And to go after sexual immorality is to try to seek full humanity in something else. The fact is that even marriage, however good it is, does not give the fulfillment that Christ does. That's why Paul can say, I wish that all were as I myself am. He knows the goodness of Christ is beyond the goodness of marriage and family, beyond the goodness of sexuality. Sexuality does not define us. Our relationship with Christ does. Now Paul gives us one more reason. Not only does sexual immorality separate us from Christ, but sexual immorality is a sin against one's own body. And that brings us to our third point. We flee sexual immorality because sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Some sins like stealing and murder make sense here. But what about something like drunkenness? Aren't there other sins that sin against one's own body? To understand what Paul's talking about here, we need to go back again to the union that's established between man and wife. They shall be one flesh. To divide or misuse the union that God has established in marriage is to hurt your body, not just at a physical level, but at every level. I've been working on the distinction between body and soul, but here we see the closeness of these two, body and soul, despite the reality of that distinction. And the same can be said of the mind and body. We can't separate the two. The body is teaching the soul something here, and if the body participates in perversion, adultery, and fornication, the body perverts the soul. That's why sexual immorality creates such brokenness and misery. Romans describes the descent into homosexual perversity as a handing over. God hands over man to self-worship, ultimately to folly. And again, this corruption has the effect of pulling us away from Christ. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And here's the clinching argument. Your your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The glory of God dwelt in the temple in a special way in the Old Testament. Now the glory of God dwells in you in a special way in the New Testament. You are a vessel for the Holy Spirit. And Paul asks, will you use that vessel of the Holy Spirit for perversion, or will you use it for the purposes which God intended it for? I mention it momentarily, but I want to bring in again the importance of the story of creation here for understanding what is good. God made man and woman to enjoy union with one another, to take dominion together, and to produce offspring. God redeems us to restore creation. Grace perfects Nature. Nature is fallen. God comes in His grace and perfects that fallen nature. It doesn't destroy nature. You are not your own, adds Paul. You were bought with a price. This is at the same time a warning and a comfort. A warning that because the new freedom in which you live is based on the precious blood of Jesus Christ... And as Hebrews warns us, it's a danger to trample that blood of Christ. But at the same time, it's a comfort because it reminds us of what Christ did to cover our sins. The precious blood of Christ was poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. The reality is we don't always flee from sexual immorality. If our minds were laid bare, it's likely that many of us would have things to tremble over. But you are bought with the precious blood of Christ, which is poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. So, glorify God with your body. The immediate context tells us that this means to use our sexuality in the way God intended, either in marriage or to refrain from the bond of marriage, to limit earthly ties in one's service of the Lord. But the, the rest of the book of the First Corinthians brings out greater meaning to this fact that you are not own, yet not your own. It means to live as you are called to avoid slavery to man, to refrain from participating in pagan feasts. It affects how you dress in worship in 1 Corinthians 11 and how you act in worship in the same chapter. It affects who may speak in the service and how the service is ordered in chapter 14. The way you use your body also flows from the redeeming blood on the cross of Christ. So glorify God with your body. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand to sing from hymn 64.